Well, you know, one of the uh, things that you might not know about your pastor is um, that I am notorious for losing my keys. Um, I, I, I lose them everywhere I go. I've lost them at the beach. I've lost them. I, I lose them at work. I come out and I'm like, I, Joyce is nodding her head, yes. I'm like, guys, have you seen my keys? They're like, they're your keys, not our keys, all right? And so, it, but to be honest with you, I lose them the most at home. I don't know if we have anyone like that. The moment that I walk through the door, it's like I'm entering into the Bermuda Triangle of like no keys, lost keys. I walk in, it's like, where'd my keys go? Oh, they're gone. I don't know where they are. And uh, my wife has tried to help me with this deficiency uh, over our 18 years of marriage. And she has, one of the things that she's tried to do, I mean, she's done everything short of giving me the clapper, uh, really, which I wouldn't allow her to give me, but um, kids are like, what, what, what's that? What, what's a clapper? Anyway, and so um, uh, she, she would put everywhere we live so far in all of the homes that we've had together, um, she gave kind of like a, a hook, you know, a hook, a key hook, right when you walk in the door. So you would think that this would be simple, yes? Come in, keys in hand, just put them on, you know, right? Are, are you guys with me? Just put them on the key hook there, and then everything would be fine. But I got to tell you, I don't think in 18 years I've ever remember putting the keys uh, on that hook. Uh, in fact, I know that because there have been times where uh, my wife has found them, and when she finds them laying around, she'll put them on that hook, and I'll go looking for my keys for like 10, 15, even 20 minutes. Finally, I'll go, honey, have you seen my keys? And she goes, have you checked the hook? And the fact that I have looked for 20 minutes and never thought that they might be on the hook lets you know that I never use it. I never put it up there. Now, my wife helps me other times when she hasn't put them away and they're really kind of misplaced somewhere within the house. Uh, what she does, the other way that she helps me is she'll do this. She'll say, Mike, think for a moment about where you went when you first walked in. You came in and then where did you go? Did you go to the kitchen? Did you go to the kids' room? Did you go to our room? Where, where, where did you go? Now, my wife's not here today. So uh, I'm going to tell you something. I don't want you to tell her, okay? All right? Uh, I hate, hate, I'm serious. I, I hate the, the think back and retrace your steps to find your keys game. Okay, of all the games there are, Yahtzee, everything else, that's my, that's my most hated game. And the reason is because by the time that I get to the point where I ask for help for my, my keys, I'm already frustrated. I'm already running late. I don't want to sit down and pontificate my journey through the house, right? And so, so it's okay. Now, when I... Now, but when I do, when I do sit down, and sometimes, this is embarrassing, but literally my wife's like, let me help you. Where did you go? I remember you kind of coming over here. Anybody do anything like this? Uh, okay, all right, we got somebody. All right, good. Thank you, brother. All right, we're, we're doing this. And so my wife literally is like, look, I remember you coming in here, then you yelled at the kids, and then you kicked the dog over here, and you did whatever. And so and then finally, if I actually go through and trace my steps, I actually find the keys. It, it's an amazing thing. And whenever I do find them, it's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I wish I would just put them where they're supposed to be, right? But instead, I go through this over and over again. I, I really think uh, that, that marriage sometimes is like misplacing, sometimes it's like misplacing car keys. You're like, okay, um, how is it like that? Well, because I think all of us, whether you're married or not, kind of know what marriage is supposed to be. You know where your marriage is supposed to be at, where, what, what it's supposed to look like how it's supposed to function. Now, that view may not always be right, but we have in our minds an ideal place of what marriage should be all about. Uh, unfortunately, for many of us in here, we're, we're not in that place. 
I don't think there's anybody here that would say, stand up today, that, hey, we've arrived, man. We are in the ideal situation within our marriage. The reason is, and, and there are some very good marriages within our church. Praise God. That's a demonstration of the grace and mercy of God. But we all have our difficulties. We all have our challenges. And we all could say, at least agree, could we not? We're just not there. Now, some of us have made such a mess, really, of things, and our marriage is such a mess, we don't even know where we are in the marriage. I mean, we, we, we feel like we're lost. We know that we're off track. All we know is we're not where we ought to be. Now, when couples come and they'll say, hey, Mike, we, we, we need some help uh, with our marriage, what I understand what they're actually saying is we're not where we ought to be. I don't know where we are, but we're not there. And so what I try to tend to do is I try to encourage them. I said, listen, I, I know you want a quick fix, but there is no quick fix to this. This has been kind of a journey. So what I need you to do is I need you, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to start where you begin and we need to walk together in a process to see where it is that you got off, where this whole thing got jumbled and lost. And, and once we find out where we are, then we can begin to make the appropriate strides to be able to find where it is that we ultimately ought to be. Does that make sense? And more times than not, what we do is, is, is the person will say, uh, you could tell that's not what they came there for. They, they are so fed up, just like I am, of, of looking for keys. Some are so fed up with the frustrations in marriage. They just want a solution right there, right then. They want a quick fix. And I'm going to let you know, it, it's impossible. It's impossible to give. Never have I had somebody say, we have marriage troubles, we have difficulties, now fix it. And in one session, it'll all be fixed. It's a journey of going back to the beginning and begin to retrace our steps again. So this morning, what we want to do in our new series here, when we're talking about marriage R&R, and, and we call it marriage R&R, uh, not rest and relaxation, because let's, let's be honest, none of us are doing that, all right? Or very few of us are doing that. Um, it's really about relationships and roles. And as we begin to understand what the relationship is supposed to be like and what the roles are supposed to be like, we get closer and closer to where it is that God would ultimately have us to be. So what I want to do is I want to start from the beginning. Let's retrace our steps. Let's go back to the beginning. And when I mean beginning, I mean the absolute beginning, the beginning of Genesis when God actually instituted marriage. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at God's design of what he wants marriage to actually look like. And so we're going to see two specific things this morning concerning that design. First of all, we see that God designed marriage to be a partnership. A partnership. Did y'all hear that? Look, look, a partnership. Okay, so notice this in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I want to make sure we understand in context of what this is being written and when all of this is occurring. It, it's happening. God, up to this point, has already created the heavens and the earth. He's created everything in it. He's created the beast of the field, the birds of the sky, uh, the fish of the sea. He's created all of these things. And he's even created man. Okay, Adam. And Adam, he's created to be a unique creation, and he's different than everything else, all the other created beings at this point. And when God looks at what he's created to this point, the Bible says when he looks at it, he only has one word that comes to his mind and heart, and that is, it is good. He looks at his creation, he says, it is good. So, so, so check this. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, everything is good. Don't you love when things are just good? Verse 18 comes, and all of a sudden it goes from good to not good. God looks down, and he looks at Adam, and he says this. He says, it is not good that man should be alone. 
Now, what I want you to understand here is I don't want you to think, even for a moment, that what happens here is that, because in light of his loneliness, he's now going to create a woman. But I don't want you in your mind to think that this woman is being created as an afterthought, okay? That, that she wasn't really a part of the, uh, the, the that God kind of overlooked something. He didn't get something quite right. It, it's kind of like this. Don't think of it this way. Don't think of it. It's hard to say don't think of it this way than explain what I'm telling you not to think, right? So let me just explain it anyway. It's not as though God created the world, this perfect world, and put this perfectly created man within it, and then gave him the perfect home, the Garden of Eden, and then gave him the perfect career path, right? Tell him what to do, to tend the garden, and, had, and was in perfect fellowship with God. And then one day, they're just kind of walking in the cool of the day in the garden. And then God looks one time and says, hey, buddy, uh, wh- wh- what's up with the big frown on there, you fella? Wh- what's going on? You look a little down right now. And he just sits there and goes, I don't know, man. I just feel this overwhelming loneliness. And God goes, oh, no. Hey, let's get together. So he gets the Godhead together, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know I'm just telling a story here, right? Okay, so, so they all kind of get in. Let's huddle up here. Listen, we can't have the only man on earth being unhappy. Let's, let's create him something. The Holy Spirit being led by the Spirit. They're like, ah, let's create him a woman. A perfect idea. And so then they decide, no, listen, God, it, it kind of sounds like this is almost what's going on in the text. It's, it's kind of like, okay, he's sad. Now we need to fix it. That's not what's going on in the text. The, the, the creation of the woman was a part of God's original plan. For there to be one man and one woman. In fact, we know that God's full will, you need to get this, God's will for mankind could not be accomplished by just the man. It could only be accomplished by both. What was it that God was going to call them to do? Here was his will for them. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and then do what? Have dominion over it, okay? We don't have to go into any kind of in-depth biology class to understand the guy can't do that by himself. Yes? Right? I mean, he's just going to be lonely. He, He can't do that by himself. So God's plan was never for there just to be a man. So then what is this kind of like essence of loneliness going on? What's what's going on here? Well, what I think is going on is this, is that God, let let me me back up. I I, I don't know right here if, if Adam actually is sensing loneliness here in verse 18. Because what he's talking to us about, he's actually talking to us from the perspective of God. He's not talking from the perspective of Adam. We're going to see that in verse 19. It's about perspective of God. what, What it tells us is that God knows the human heart. He knows what you need. He knows what I need. Isn't that a wonderful thing? He knows, he knows better than we do, doesn't he? And he knows that Adam needs this fellowship and this intimacy. Why? Because God created him that way. This wasn't some deficiency. God gave him a desire to be in community. Now, I've got to tell you this. I'm not a big crowds guy. I'd rather, I'd rather preach to a larger crowd than to a small crowd. I don't know why that is. I'm all messed up. But I get very uncomfortable around big crowds. My wife, she's kind of like, hey, where's the party? You know, she wants to, to kind of do that. I'm just kind of like, oh, really? Okay, yeah. I mean, you guys know that, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a problem for me. She's got to really, hey, look, we're getting together. Okay, we're getting together. And I, like to, I, I just like to be alone. That's sad, isn't it? Just kind of be alone. And I don't know why that is. It's mainly because so many people hate the preacher. I don't know. Uh, it's a whole nother preach, a whole nother service. I don't know what it is. I just, maybe some of you just kind of like to kind of be alone. But I'll tell you this, you can't be completely alone all the time, right? I mean, even I, Mr. Lone, lone Guy, like to be a lone guy, would go crazy. If you were alone, there are people who torture people, not by water, but just by putting them in isolation. 
They, they're not torturing them or pulling their fingers out or, or you know, their, their nails out. They're just like, here, be alone. And they're like, Rah! They, they freak out. If you're all alone too long, you end up getting a volleyball, putting a smiley face on it, and it becomes your best friend, Wilson, right? You, you go crazy, right? Because you need fellowship. God creates us that way. So God created him that way, and then here's what he's doing. Now he's coming as our God does, and he provides for his very need. That's what he's been doing through the whole, the whole first two chapters. He's constantly providing for our need, but he gave him that need. He gave him that desire to be able to be in that fellowship. Now notice this in verse 19. The Bible then says, he says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So that's the second time that we saw that phrase, isn't it? No helper fit for him. Did you note that? Now, in the beginning... In verse 18, we didn't really recognize, we didn't know whether Adam actually felt or sensed this deep longing of fellowship and community. But here in verse 19, we get it. He, he gets it. He's experiencing this now. How did that come about? Well, God brought all the animals before him, and he names them all. And so he sees a big, you know, dark-looking, hairy-looking, you know, couple, male, female, and he goes, okay, you're an ape, all right? Sees a funny looking something with a tail and a funny bill, and he's like, hey, you're a platypus. And so he gets done with all this, and every time that he's naming all of these animals, he notices there's something different about them than him. And what is different is they all seem to kind of have couples. There's kind of a male and kind of this female, and, and then when he gets to the end of the whole thing, he turns around and he realizes that he's all by himself, so he begins to crave that type of intimacy. He, he wants this, this more, and what is it that he's craving? Better yet, what is it that God had placed? What, what, what did God want for him, and what did Adam want for him? He wanted a helper. He wanted a helper. Now, 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 what does the word helper mean? The word literally means, it comes in the sense of giving aid and support to another. When you help somebody, you aid them and you support them. Now, let me, let me just address the elephant in the room. We're going to have to address this a lot through this series, is that because of our world and our fallen world, that seems to be a derogatory sense, a derogatory idea. That, oh, there's the little missus there to help the husband. That's all her role. And so it's, it seems so demeaning, but there's nothing demeaning about being a helper. Do you guys understand that? And the reason is, in fact, it's not demeaning, it's actually, actually exalting because the same work for helper here in Genesis is the same Hebrew word that's used time and time again through the rest of the Old Testament to describe God himself. When we go to the book of Psalms, Psalm 20 and Psalm 121 and Psalm uh, 124, each time it speaks of God as being a helper unto his people Israel. When got, uh, uh, Moses himself, when he begins to uh, call out to God, he refers to him as the helper who aided the Israelites' deliverance from Pharaoh. So this is a helper. Sometimes in, in, in marriage or, or what, marriage counseling or even in the wedding, I'll say something like this. I'll say, and here she is to come and come alongside and to assist her husband. And I explain it. I know that might be demeaning for some of you, but what is more demeaning being the helper or being the one who needs help? 
right? The one who needs help, that seems to be in the, the, the more demeaning kind of position. I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. I'll help you, right? And it seems like the person who's helping, thank God for women. Guys are sitting there going, I don't know what I'm doing. Wife's there going, I'm here to help, right? Thank you, wife. And that's a beautiful thing. It's not something. Don't let the world intoxicate your mind and distort it from something that's unbelievably beautiful that God has ultimately created, Okay? And so this is a good thing. This is a wonderful thing. And now notice this. He talks about this partner there to help. And then I love one translation. One biblical translation calls it an indispensable partner. Oh, man, I love that. Indispensable partner. In other words, you can't do it by yourself. All right? Indispensable. It won't get done. The will of God won't get done unless she is there for you, Adam, and both of you doing your own thing or you're uh, working together. That's ultimately the picture of how you're going to get my will done for you. Got it? So, so that's where he's... And then notice this part about fit. Because God, the, the scriptures are always emphasizing this idea, fit for him. It symbolizes, it's, it, it speaks of something being suitable. In other words, it talks about equality and sameness. So he needs a helper, but he doesn't need a monkey to help him. Got it? He doesn't need help from the platypus. What he needs is he needs a help from somebody who is like him, not exactly like him. Praise God that women are not exactly like men. Praise God for that. But it's somebody who is like him, one of his own. So here's the idea. God is going to create him a helper that's going to be a little bit different, but overall is going to have the same sameness and equality. They're going to differ in what they do. They're going to differ in their roles, but they are the same in equality. Do you guys get that? And then God is going to take them together, and he's going to get them to work as partners together to fulfill God's ultimate goal for their life. Get that? Get that? I hope you get that, because let me, t- let me be really honest with you. I run into couples all the time that don't get that. They don't get that. You talk about that partnership in the way that they talk to each other, react to each other, respond to each other, in the way that they're living, it's no partnership. It seems far more is like they're opposed to each other, that they're against each other. The words that they use to be able to speak to each other, and they, spend, they are both exhausted because they spend so much time in their life coming up and pushing against each other because they're not on the same page. They're not striving for the same thing. Both of them have a different goal, and they're, they're, they're coming, and they're working against each other, which means the goal of God is not ultimately being accomplished within that marriage. Does it make sense? Let me, let me give you an illustration of this. Many of you know uh, that the Gators have not been very good. I'm a Gator fan. I can talk about this. I'm, I'm not the kind of guy that gets up and talks about the Florida State loss yesterday, okay? Um, so, so, oh, wait. Um, so, anyway, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. All right. So, Florida has stunk. Let's just all agree it. We, we've stunk. You know, four or five years been awful. And I remember last year, everybody's trying to figure out what's wrong with them. What is wrong with, with Florida? Is it the coach? Is, is it the players? Do we not have any talent? Is, is it the coaching specifically? You know, the other coaches? What, what's going on? How is this whole thing just completely abysmal dumpster fire? And then I had a friend who sent me this picture. And you may have seen this. He sent me a picture. He goes, hey, man, I think I know what's wrong with your Gators. This was a Georgia fan, by the way. And I said, what is that? And he sends this picture to me. Do you have it? This picture right over here. See around the circle here? It's not a real great picture. But this is, this is two Gators blocking themselves. Okay, they're blocking themselves. So see that? See that? All right. This. And so, uh, and this is actually a different play. 
This is two different plays. They're blocking themselves. And so I have a hard time believing, don't you, when the coaches drew this up and sit there and say, okay, guys, listen, I just want to remind, just take it down, please. Would you please just take that down? I just, I can't even imagine, I can't imagine that when they got into, with, with a nice little marker board and they, they write this thing up, they sit there and say, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. He says, listen, you know what the goal is. Your goal is to get the ball in the touchdown. We want to score touchdowns. We want to win. We're on the same team. We are a team. There's no I in team. Let's do it. Let's work together. Let's, I, I guarantee they didn't sit there and say, and the, our most effective way of achieving our goal is for you guys to expend all your energy blocking each other. Do you? I mean, if they're blocking each other, is there any chance of victory? I don't think so. Let me just say this. In a marriage as well, some of you need to understand and just be reminded very clearly, God's design was not for you to work against each other, but was to work for each other, for the principle and the purposes of God. And we're going to get that to a minute. And I'm telling you, if you are that person, if you find yourself constantly trying to get your way, your spouse is trying to get their way, and you're constantly rubbing in that way against each other, in that time, it will wear you out. It will come to the point where you're just sitting there and going, man, I don't even know what this marriage is ultimately all about, and you'll get lost in that. And, but it's not what God's ultimate design has been. The ultimate design is for you two to work together. Here's why. Because you can't do what God wants to do in you alone. That's the whole point for marriage. And so we, we, we get that? Okay, so we understand. We understand, first of all, this partnership. The second thing we understand is God's provision. The other point of his, his, his design is that it was a provision for us, for each of you. Now, notice this in verse 21. He says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with the flesh. What I want you to see here is that the creation of the woman is a special creation. This is a unique creation above all other creations. It's pretty cool. Ladies, you're unique, all right, in a good way, all right? Um, I've had people say that, Mike, you're really unique, and I know that it, that didn't mean something nice. And so, uh, so this was a unique creation. Uh, how do we know that? How are all the animals uh, put together through the dust of the earth? How was man created through the dust of the earth? Now, we know man is distinctive from the animals because he was created in the image of God. God breathed life into him. He didn't do that for the animals. But the woman comes along the scene, and he doesn't, he doesn't take her from the dirt. Where does he take her from? Out of the side of Adam, from the life of Adam himself, right? And so what we find here is it's an emphasis of the fact that, it, it, again, it emphasizes this idea of equality with each other. It emphasizes once again and illustrates the idea that the responsibility of dominion and working together for God's plan is a shared responsibility between the two. You got that? Maybe you've heard maybe uh, in, in a wedding where a pastor says something to the effect of, hey, listen, God didn't take, him, take, take, you know, take a wife or Eve from the head for, him to lord, for her to lord over him or, under, uh, or from a feet in order for them to be able to stomp on and to be able to dominate, but from the side to do what? To love and to cherish and to work together as partners in what God has called them to be able to be and to be able to do. And so that's, that's again, the emphasis of what God has ultimately called us. So what God God does now is he's about to perform the first surgery. Here's the first surgery. He puts him into a deep sleep. And I love the Hebrew language because it, sometimes it's just so creative. And when you see where, it, where, where these words are used in other places of the Old Testament, it, it makes it come alive. This idea of deep sleep is also found in the story uh, of Jonah. 
and uh, where Jonah is running from God and he's exhausted from God uh, from, from that running. And yet, even though he's in the midst of a hurricane, even though he's in the midst of men screaming for their lives and the ship ready to be able to go down and filling with water, he is so exhausted he sleeps in a deep sleep. The idea of deep sleep that nothing can wake you is what's happening with Adam right here. So Adam is in this deep sleep. God comes and he takes one of the ribs out of him and then he just very perfect perfection forms this woman forms her, crafts her, not from the dust, but from him. And then this is what I love. So she is, she is this incredible provision, and now God's going to bring her to him. Now, note this, verse 22. And the rib that the Lord had, uh, God had taken from man, he made, he made into a woman, and he brought her to him. What, what a beautiful picture, right? Here he is. He's over there. He's sleeping. You know, he's in, you know, Post-op, pre-op, whatever that is. I guess post-op, right? So he, he's over there, and he's trying to get better and everything. He's healing up. God's put the flesh back on there. He's all healed up. He's over here, and he's like, okay, walk this way. And he starts walking with her. It, it kind of reminds us of the wedding, doesn't it? The wedding where the father, you know, sits there, and in, 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 he sits back, and he takes his daughter, and he walks her down the thing. And I think of this because of my five girls, and it's not something I look forward to. But anyway, you, 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 they, they, they bring him down, and the, there's the father right there, and he brings him down to the front altar, and the pastor says, who is it that gives this woman to this man in marriage? And, and I say, her mother and I give it to this idiot. And so anyway, so, so anyway, and so I think, there we go, got eyes on you, right? And so that's what you do, and then you just kind of walk away. So it's the picture. The reason we do that in our wedding is because it pictures God the Father creating this special provision. Listen to me, special provision, special gift to him. And she comes in. Have you ever, have you ever given a gift and you're so excited to give it, you just kind of like, you know, here's the gift, go ahead and open it. You know, when you were a little kid, you couldn't stand it. I mean, you would make those, whatever it is that you make, maybe a clay ashtray. Do you guys remember that? <laughs> Have you noticed they don't do that in school anymore? Hey, where do we make it? Clay ashtrays. <laughs> that just came to me. Anyway, so, anyway, just clay ashtrays. And so, you know, it's, it's funny how things change because then it was all the rage. Hey, clay ashtray, you know, and everything. And now it's like, oh, smoking's horrible, which it is. So, and, um, and so the recover. Okay, so, so the clay asteroid, you know, whatever it is, and you get, remember you're just so excited? You guys with me with this? Or even with your wife, you got something, and you're like, hey, I, you know, I got, I got this for you. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I hope you like it. And you just kind of sit back and you're looking. There's just this kind of, and I know this is all my sanctified imagination, but God just sitting there going, when did he, wait until he gets a load of you, right? And he, and, he, and he brings her up, and he goes, I made that for you my gift for you. That's, that, that's it. Perfect for you. Perfectly fitting you. This is the helper that you have longed for. And then what I love about it is that he recognizes it. Adam recognizes it as this is God's provision to him. This is, this is what I love. Listen what, listen what he says. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He gets it. I love it. Do you hear the gasp? At last. Look, I got married when I was 27. 
I didn't know if I was going to get married and everything, and all my friends were all married, and they had all this other kind of stuff, and I remember just kind of sitting, and, and people literally going, you ain't never going to get married. You know, relatives, they really help you a lot with your self-esteem. You ain't never going to marry. Obviously, you're doing something wrong. You're too picky, whatever it is, and so you're sitting there and, and whatever, but I remember finally God bringing Larissa and I together, and I remember sitting there, and literally, there's this collective, wow, at last, at last, I remember very distinctly at North Jacksonville Baptist Church, that's where I got married, and it's got this long aisle. And I remember, hadn't seen Larissa before, you know, the wedding or anything, and I remember sitting there, and as I turn and I look down that aisle, I, I can still picture it like it was yesterday. I remember seeing her walk through that door, and I remember looking at her, and I remember that sense of, at last, at last, what a gift, what a treasure. Now, here's what's interesting. I love that he recognizes it, but what I love even more is that it was actually written down, right? Now, it's, it doesn't work this way because Adam's not alive by the time that this is written down. Okay, we need to understand that. But I love that it's written down, and it would be good if it was written down because he's going to have to come back and remember what it was that he was feeling and thinking at this particular moment, okay? And so the reason why is because just one chapter later, what ultimately happens? Everything falls apart. Eve blows it for the rest of humanity. I'm just kidding. Uh, she, uh, she's not really the one who blows it. It's really Adam who blows it. Why? And we're going to get into this because he's not holding the responsibility in leading and protecting the family spiritually, right? W would you agree? So really it's his fault. So because of a void of leadership, she steps up because somebody has to lead. Now she's still in sin, but he's the one who initiated that sin to begin with. And then here's what ultimately happens. As he's sitting there, He's sitting there, and everything has fallen. Everything has fallen. They're in fear of their lives. God comes in and says to him, first, Adam, what did you do? Right? Didn't come to Eve. Why? Because he's got the responsibility. So he's sitting there, and he says, Adam, what did you do? And what does he do? He takes the sweet, bundle, precious gift of God, and he throws her under the bus, right? <laughs> what happened? Just a few moments ago, she's precious at last. She's everything I could ever want. Who, 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 who's, whose fault is this whole mess? Hers. And he says, the woman you gave me. The woman you gave me. You mean the same one that's precious flesh of my flesh? Yeah, that one. She, she, she's at fault. Let me, let me bring something out to you, and we're going to get into this later in the series. But what I think is interesting about that is when you and I begin to lose a high esteem and a high view of the value of our spouse, it is never because of their sin. It is always because of yours. I want to repeat that. When you begin to not value your spouse, it's not because of any sin that they might be committing. The devaluing of your spouse is caused by your own sin. There are godly men and women that I know, that some of you know, that are part of our church that have experienced some of the most horrendous things imaginable at the hand of their spouse. They're still living in very difficult times. But let me tell you what's amazing about it is when I talk with them, because of how godly they are, they still have great affections, great love, and even a great, strange, mysterious appreciation for their spouse, even in the midst of them in some ways not being very good, right? And I sit there and go, how can you do this? Then I got another couple in, and the woman or the man is like, they're worthless. When you begin to unpack it, how they ultimately view the value of their spouse has nothing to do with how good or how bad their spouse is. 
It has to do with how closely they're aligning themselves and walking before God. It's not because of the sin of another. It's because of their own sin. Do you guys understand that? And so he comes and he gives this gift for her. And I love the fact that he writes it down once again because now he needs to revisit this. Uh, I remember a while back uh, talking with a, a woman who, um, you know, we were kind of talking about this, this very issue. And she says, you know, Mike, an interesting thing happens. And I had known her husband and, and, you know, Christian and everything and trying to work out, but he was definitely not an elite believer, if you will. Somebody that I would say, hey, this is what you want to be if you want to be a man of God, a picture of it. He just was there you know, and, uh, and I know that she had been hurt by him and, and everything, and she said, you know, kind of a crazy thing happened. She said, what? She goes, I, I went back, and, and I saw kind of like some things that I had written about him when I was, when we first got married, and I was amazed and blown away by what I said about him and how I felt about him and the things that I thought he was and, and did and all these, and it just kind of re- brought me back to a place that I began to believe and remember how precious that was, what a great provision of God that is. But now through all that sin, and what I would say, but now through all that sin and all that time, that luster begins to kind of, kind of fall off a little bit. So in our marriages, what you and I need to be able to do is we need to go back. We need to go back to the beginning. We begin to recognize our wives and our husbands, not only as partners in order to be able to fulfill the purpose of God for us, but also as his gracious uh, provision and a precious gift that God has given to us. And so we need to begin to live as partners and we begin to treasure each other as the precious gift that God has given us that other person. Does that, does that make sense? Now, the question is this. The question is, okay, Mike, we understand the will of God, but what is the will of God? What is the purpose of marriage? And I just want to nail this down. We, we got just a couple minutes. Let me nail this down because this is going to be, all this is format for how we move forward from here, all right? There's going to be times where we're going to come back to the idea, hey, are you partners, okay? Hey, uh, are, you, are, are, you, are you treating each other as though you are precious gifts and provision of God? That's a question that I keep asking couples when they begin to struggle. Go back to that. But one of the keys is, okay, what is the purpose God has given you this individual, this wonderful provision to be a partner, to fulfill his purpose. What's the purpose? Well, you know, that's debated with a lot of people. You know, when, whenever I sit down and begin to do premarital counseling with somebody, I ask them the question, so, so why are y'all getting married? Love. We just, we love each other. Love. Love will keep us together, says Captain Antonio, all right? So, so the, even though they're divorced. So anyway, and so they're, so the idea is, 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 is love. Other people, they'll sit there, and, and, and you can almost tell, well, we, we really want to have children. Really want to have children. Okay, you really want to have children? That's why you're getting married, because you want to have children? Yes. Um, you know, companionship. You know, we're lonely. You know, now, let me say something. All these things, I think, are natural things, right? Some people say, hey, the guy, this is normal. It is, man, well, she's hot. <laughs> I mean, that's why I want to get married, right? So there's the idea of sexual fulfillment and satisfaction there, right? So all of these, I don't think any of those are bad desires, right? To, to have companionship, to, to want to have children, to, 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 to want to have that physical intimacy. All those things, I think, are God-given blessings of marriage. None of them are the reason to get married. None of them are God's purpose to be married. So what is it? Well, God gives it to us. Or I'll open up to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. For you who have been around for a while here at Celebration, this isn't going to come to any shocker to you. We preached on this, and we've taught this uh, at, at, um, at length. I'm just trying to find another way to be able to go through it. 
And so what we find is Ephesians chapter 32, and it's interesting in there, it's after God talks about marriage and, and Christ and the church and, and, and all these things, when he gets all then and he says to leave and to cleave and the two shall become one, he sums it up with this incredible verse. Ephesians 5, 32 says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. All right, so according to Christ through the apostle Paul, the purpose of marriage is not primarily sexual fulfillment, is not primarily your happiness, your individual happiness. That's what I love the most. Well, if they make me happy, well, give it a little while. You know, <laughs> just, you know, we'll, we'll see how that works. You're not trying to be, you know, a downer, but you're just like, you know, okay, great. You know, but I hope you're not clinging too much to happiness in this, you know, because one day will come, you'll wake up and you won't be all that happy. Yes? I, you're, you're afraid to answer, aren't you? All the guys are like, no, let's talk about that right now. And so what is it? All those things can ultimately pass away, but there's still a remain, there's still a purpose. And what is that purpose? God says right here, he says, the mystery is Christ in the church. The marriage relationship and the purpose of God putting that marriage together in you and your spouse is to outwardly, publicly, to a lost and dying world and even to his church, demonstrate every day how you treat your spouse of what it's like to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. You are modeling salvation between Christ and the church, and you are putting on a display for everyone. So note this. All of the grace and the mercy and the unconditional love that you receive from Christ, is that a lot? Every moment of every day, yes? Every moment of every day, you are receiving grace, receiving mercy, receiving unconditional love for the most gross sense. And God still loves you. He still embraces you. He still calls you his own. He still gives you things and wonderful blessings that you don't even deserve. It's called grace and it's called mercy, right? And he does certain things and he does discipline. He does all that. We'll get to all that. But this is what I'm going to say. So the call is for you and I to take all that grace and mercy and goodness that God has bestowed upon us. And the purpose of marriage is to bend it outward to your spouse and to work in that relationship and to sit there and every day. And so when, when people come in, when people come in and they say, well, my husband does this, or my, or, or my wife does this, or they do whatever, I said, great. This is a wonderful for you, opportunity for you to fulfill the purpose of marriage. And see, I think what happens oftentimes, and, and this, I hear this all the time, but you don't understand what I go through. You don't understand what he does. You don't understand what she does. And I usually answer this, and this is why people love me so much. Is, is I usually say, no, you don't know what you do. You've lost any kind, of, any kind of reality of who you are and what you've done. Because I'm telling you, whatever it is, and this is clearly biblical, whatever it is that you think that your spouse has done for, to you, it is nothing compared to what you have done and continue to do, even as a believer in Jesus Christ, to your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet God doesn't sit there and take away his love, take away his grace, take away his mercy, take away any of that. He just keeps bestowing upon you. Now, we're going to talk later in the series about how we're supposed to balance that and how God uses each other to be able to be used to, to change us into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. But in, that is a purpose of it. God has put you together to show everybody what it's like to be in a relationship with Christ. Why? Because God, Christ, is not in a relationship with anyone who is perfect, but who is sinful. And when people see a marriage and they see two sinners come together and yet they're bound together 
and they're glued together and, and, and they live together and they love each other in spite of all the difficulties and all the hardships, but one or the other is constantly demonstrating grace and love in the midst of it. It puts on a full display what the gospel is to a lost and dying world. Why would you stick with him? Why do you put up? Because of the gospel. I just take the grace and the mercy of which God has bestowed to me and I bend it outwards to them. That's why this whole he does, she does, he doesn't, whatever. I often answered the question this. They said, but what about him doing this? I said, what he's doing is wrong, but to you it shouldn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter? I go, it doesn't mean that, that his sin doesn't have any significance at all, but it doesn't change the way that you respond to him. It doesn't change the way that she responds to you or he responds to you. In other words, if a person sins, what we see in the relationship constantly is we return sin for sin. He does this, therefore I'm going to do this. It's not the gospel. The gospel is in even the basics of Scripture. The basics of Scripture. The Bible teaches us all the way through. If somebody sins against you, all right, if somebody strikes you on one side, what? Turn it off from the other. If somebody forces you to go one mile, go with him the second. So not even in marriage, just the whole Christian life is about bestowing the gospel in that way. But here's one thing that I understand. I understand that if you don't understand the gospel, if you don't understand the gospel, this is impossible. To live within a Christian life and to live it as God would call us to do is impossible anyway, apart from a believer in Jesus Christ, having been changed, transformed, and having the Holy Spirit inside of them to be able to live it out. But if you're not born again, it's impossible. And here's why. You can't extend any type of grace or mercy and can't do something that you've never experienced yourself. Would you agree with that? So in the beginning of this, here's what we're going to call for. The first thing is, man, if you've never been born again, if you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ and been bestowed and, and received that mercy and grace and salvation from God, then today is the day to be able to do that. I think this type of message, what it does, is it does a couple things. Number one, it causes us to look inwardly and ask ourselves, here's the questions, am I relating to my spouse and do I picture this relationship as a partnership? Are we on the same page? Are we working for the same purposes? Number two, do I still, still view my spouse as precious gift and provision of God? You may not view them there, but it's going to demonstrate a lot more of your sinfulness than their sinfulness. There's a repentance that needs to be done there. And so let me say this. Some of you have gone through all of this. You're much further along in your marriages and everything that was said here is not so much convicting, even though you know that you're not there. But for many in here, it might be just something to give glory of God to, to sit back and go, you know what? I thank you, God, for my partner that you've given me. God, I see in how wonderful that they ultimately are. See, God, I, and not only that, but I treasure them more today than I ever did. And I would guarantee if I went down, if I went across this room, into to some of our senior adults, and I were to ask them, those that have strong marriages, and I would just say, has it been easy? Have you always really experienced this depth of intimacy with your spouse? They would sit back and go, heck no! But what they've done is over the time, God has changed them and transformed them into understanding more of what this picture is of Christ in the church. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And God, we, we, we now ask you, Lord, to minister to our hearts. I believe that you already have been doing that. But God, I, I just pray right now that we will understand your design, partnership, provision, for the purpose of demonstrating the gospel. I relate to my wife, 
relate to a husband, 